morning, everyone. Uh, has anybody ever heard of The Young and the Restless? There's a few who are admitting to that. The Young and the Restless, in case you don't know, is a soap opera that's on every day at 11 o'clock, which I never miss. It's not true. But uh, once in a while, if I am home and uh, it comes on, I'll see it. And um, I'm always intrigued by the name of that soap opera. And you can imagine that since we're doing this series on rest, that it caught my eye and um, I wanted to know more about it. And apparently, this was the number one daytime drama for 1,300 weeks. And in case you don't know how long that is, that's 25 years. Number one. And the storyline, one storyline that has endured through almost the entire show's run, is a feud between Jill Abbott and Catherine, the first service they knew. Nobody wants to admit it. Catherine Chancellor. So it's the longest rivalry on any American soap opera. Isn't that thrilling? Anyway, in 1972, the original, the original name of the soap opera was supposed to be The Innocent Years. Yeah, <laughs> The Innocent Years. So the creators, the Bell Brothers, uh, this is what they said. They said, we were confronted with, this, with a very disturbing reality that young Americans had lost much of its innocence. Innocence as we had known and lived it all our lives had in so many respects ceased to exist. So back in 1972, I was just one years old. Actually, I was 10. And I remember, well, I don't remember The Young and the Restless, but I do remember 1972 like it was yesterday. I thought it was, those were fantastic days. And yet, the creators of the soap opera, they're lamenting the loss of innocence in America. And so they come, with this, they come up with this title, The Young and the restless. Here's what, I, uh, here's what I have come to realize in my own life, is that as the time goes by, things are not getting better, contrary to what, what many social scientists and many uh, anthropologists say. In fact, things are getting worse. In fact, if you go online and Google it, you can ask yourself the question or ask the question to Google, are things getting better or worse? Steve Pinker wrote a book called Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. And he, he speaks of the 15 different measurements that he uses to look at human well-being and, and their progress. And he says, he argues that actually the world is getting better. Things are improving. And he says, for instance, uh, people are becoming less prejudiced and more liberal. And by liberal, we're not talking about a political party. We're talking about being liberal-minded and more open to other people. He talks about uh, the improvement in healthier nutrition around the world. Uh, people are being schooled. There are more incentives for analytical thinking. Humanity is also getting smarter overall. He says IQ points or scores have been going up everywhere by about three points a decade. Meanwhile, most people would say that things are not getting better. In fact, they would say it's getting worse. 
So why is this? Why do the social scientists say things are getting better? Well, you ask the average man on the street, and they'll say things are getting worse. Well, I'll tell you. Steven Pinker is appealing to reason. He's appealing to science. He's appealing to humanism. He's appealing to progress. But he forgets what is intuitive to all human beings, whether they're religious or not. And that is that spiritual component. Augustine said that all of us has a God-shaped hole in our heart that only God can fill. And we know, uh, just by looking at the way people live, that people are constantly trying to settle that restlessness that's in their heart. They're trying to find a way to find peace and to find happiness. They turn to all kinds of religions. And even Christians, if you can believe it, will sometimes turn to other religions to try to find the peace that their heart so desperately, desperately longs for. I'm here today to tell you that the rest that your heart craves, there's other words like peace or joy or happiness, that, that rest that your heart craves, it can only come to you through Jesus Christ. So Steven Pinker is correct in the sense that IQ scores are going up, there's we're living in a healthier world in the sense that there's more, there's more education. There's greater luxuries. The average person has disposable income. The average person has got uh, uh, a weekend. And what, in one point, people never had a weekend. They're working shorter hours, shorter days. Uh, so in that sense, things are, are better. But people's overall sense of peace of happiness is missing. Pinker would argue that crime has gone down, but what he won't tell you is that suicide is going up, depression is going up, emotional problems are on the rise. Last summer, I was one of the drivers that took kids to the football game, and in my car, we had a full car load of kids, and every one of them talked about their social anxiety, their social problem, and there's all kinds of things I didn't even know existed, but every one of them was talking about, well, I've got this issue, and I've got that issue, and I've got this problem, and that problem, and, and, and so on and so forth. we got, we got a problem on our hands. The world is not getting better. The World Health Organization estimates that each year approximately one million people die from suicide which represents a global mortality rate of 16 people per 100,000 people. That's one death every 40 seconds. It's predicted that by 2020, the rate of death will increase to one person in every 20 seconds. And the people who are suffering the most are, in fact, the young and the restless. We got a big problem on our hands, and by the way, it's not just young people, it's people of all ages. Janet just told me this morning, she had no idea what I would be speaking about, but she told me this morning, out of the blue, that in Manitoba alone, this, just since January, and I think these are the numbers, if they're not, you can correct me later, 66 people have gotten assisted suicide. You never would have dreamt that that would be happening in our province. And yet, there it is. We're restless, we're burdened, we're stressed out. Things are not getting better. And the average person on the street 
would say that's true. Things are not getting better. Folks, the answer to our sick world, in case you didn't know it, is Jesus. And that's what you're here for today because you need to be reminded that Jesus Christ, to use an old platitude, is still the answer. That Jesus Christ is still the only way. That Jesus Christ is still the answer to every one of your problems. Now, I know I'm speaking to many people here today who are Christians. You grew up in a Christian home. You believe in Christ. And you know all those platitudes. You could recite them. In fact, you probably uh, maybe even have bumper stickers on your car that says, Jesus is the way. If you love Jesus, honk, and so on and so forth. But I want us to get back to this place where we understand that if we're going to truly know the rest, the peace, the happiness of God, then what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to learn what it means to truly follow Christ. We have to understand what does it mean that Jesus is the answer. So here's what Jesus says. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and harassed and stressed out, and anxious, and worried, and full of cares. Come to me, all you who made a mess of your life, all you who are trying to win your way into the kingdom of God. Come to me, all you who are tired of religion. Come to me, all you who are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Rest comes through Jesus Christ. But what we have to understand is, what does that mean? What does it look like? How do we take Jesus at his word? How do we respond to Jesus and his claim that he can give us rest? Now, let me just remind everybody today that the human condition is, in fact, restlessness, wandering, discontent, we're sad, we're ungrateful, we're looking for peace. We're looking for that, ah, oh, I feel content. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for something that satisfies our heart, that calms our heart down, that makes us feel at peace. For many of us, we're living our lives looking in the rearview mirror, we're looking at what happened yesterday, last week, last month. I should have done this, I should have done that, I could have done that better. Can't believe I said that, can't believe I did that. I made such a mess of my life. Some of us are constantly rehearsing, going over the things of yesterday, and we have no rest. For some of us, we're looking, we're looking far into the future. We're worried about tomorrow, even though Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. We're anxious about the past. We're anxious about the future. So we don't have that rest that we're supposed to have considering that we are Christians. God gives us some great lessons in the Old Testament to help us understand who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us here on this earth. And we've been talking for the last few weeks about the rest of God and, and the Author of Hebrews 4, of course, references the children of Israel who, who had come out of Egypt. Do you remember the story? God had brought down 10 plagues on Israel, and then God sent a, a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day to, to stand between or to go between Israel 
and their enemies, the Egyptians. And Israel is, is, is being led away from Egypt to the place that we know or call the promised land. And so they've left Egypt, they've come to the Red Sea, and God miraculously parts the Red Sea, and miraculously the people walk across the, the bed of the Red Sea. And then when they safely to the other side, God closes the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's armies drown in the Red Sea. Now you would think that Israel would say, wow, we are so blessed, we've got God on our side. God's taking care of us. God's taking us to that place of rest, that promised land, the place that God promised to Abraham. They go through the wilderness for about two and a half years. In that time, God gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them the form of worship through the tabernacle. They, they are being fed from heaven, a special food called, what is it? No, it's called, what is it? It's, what is it? No, it's called, what is it? That's what it is. In, in Hebrew, it's, what is it? It's, what is it? So they're eating, what is it, every day? And God's taking good care of them. They're thirsty, they need water, and next thing you know, God's the, is giving them water from a rock, and he brings them to the borders of the promised land, and you know the story. God says, send in Tells Moses, Moses, get some spies, go into the land. Moses sends 12 in, a representative of every tribe. They get there, they look around, come back. This place is amazing. It really is a promised land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. The grapes are so big, it takes two men to carry one cluster. It's amazing. However, but we don't think it's going to work. And so 10, 10 of the spies, you know the story, they say, it's not going to work, we shouldn't do this, we're going to be slaughtered, we're like, the, we're like locusts in their eyes, like little tiny grasshoppers, they're giants. Two of the spies, Caleb, Caleb and Joshua, they said, yes, we can do it. And because they said no, you know the story, God did, because they disobeyed God, they were not allowed to enter into God's rest. They were denied that peace, that safety, that comfort. Now we fast forward 40 years because remember those people that were denied entry into the promised land were the ones that had to wander for 40 years. And as soon as all, all of those people died, then they were ready to go and to try it again. So I had a friend of mine say once to me, can you imagine if you're the last person Everybody in Israel knows when the last person in that generation dies, then we get to go into the promised land again. Can you imagine if you're the last one and everybody's just waiting for you to die? <laughs> wow. Well, that day came. The last person died, and God said, okay, Joshua, I want you to try it again. And so all these people wander through the wilderness. Joshua takes them to the border of the promised land. And this time, Joshua's smart. He's not sending in 12 spies. He only sends in two. It, works, it seemed to work better that way. The two came back and they said, let's do it. We can do it. God's on our side. These people haven't got a chance. They're terrified. They've heard about our God. They've heard about us. And we can do this. What's changed? These people put their faith in God. And so what happens is they actually enter 
into the promised land. Why? Because they were prepared to obey God. They were prepared, listen to this, they were prepared to believe God and do what he says. Folks, that is what faith is. Faith is believing God and doing what God says. And if you and I are going to enter the rest that Jesus has for us, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to go to Jesus with our weariness, with our heavy burdens, and we're going to have to say, I give up. I surrender. I can't do this anymore, God. And we're going to have to start doing life God's way. Folks, this is what Christianity is all about. We're putting our faith in Jesus. Now look at this. For many of us, we understand that Jesus came to this earth to seek and to save what was lost. That's us. We were lost. Jesus came to find us and to save us. We understand that Jesus came to this earth to be nailed to the cross, to take upon himself our sins. We understand that. But so often what we fail to talk about is we fail to talk about the fact that Jesus came to this earth not just to die, but he came to live. He came to show us how to live. He came to show us how to live a life that is in keeping with, in step with him. So let's talk about that a bit more. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse, verses 8 to 11, listen to this. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them his rest, or this rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. What is he saying here? Well, Joshua, he brought the people of Israel in, and just before he died... It says at the end of Joshua, the book of Joshua that all the wars were fought and there was peace and everybody was happy and Joshua is ready to die. He said, well, everybody, we've, I've done my job. I'm ready to die. You understand that you need to keep faith in God and everything's fine. The problem is, is that after Joshua died, other leaders rose up and some of them forgot about God. And the next thing you know, Israel is not trusting God. They're not putting their faith in God. They're doing whatever they want. Now listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can't do whatever you want. You have to do what Jesus tells you to do. By definition, a Christian is somebody who does what Jesus does. We're followers of Christ. And so what happens to Israel is that next thing you know, they've turned their backs on God. God sends in uh, the enemy, neighboring enemy, and they oppress Israel, and Israel can't stand it anymore. Go, God, you've forsaken us. We're sorry for our sins, and God forgives them and, and drives out the enemy. And then it happens again and again and again. And we get to the, to the kings, and the same thing happens. And it gets so bad that God actually sends invaders from the north, and Israel has to be sent into exile. You're kicked right out of the land. The land vomited Israel out. And so we read, now if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. As good as Joshua was, Joshua couldn't get the job done. There needed to be another day. So there is a special rest, a Sabbath rest still waiting for the people of God. What is he talking about? I'll tell you, he's talking about Jesus. Because anybody and everybody who follows Jesus and puts their faith in Jesus will find rest. Did you know that Joshua 
and Jesus means the same thing. The Lord saves. The first Joshua, he did a pretty good job. But the problem with the first Joshua is the rest that he was giving to Israel was a physical rest. The second Joshua, Jesus, gives us spiritual rest. Now let the Spirit of God speak to your heart right now. Because the TV preachers are going to promise you all kinds of prosperity and all the things you want, get whatever you want, have whatever you want, do whatever you want. But I'm going to tell you that New Test- the New Testament teaches us something altogether different. We're talking about an internal rest where you are content with whatever you have. You know, it's kind of ironic. I'm standing up here this morning, and in one minute it'll be this afternoon, and I'm talking about rest. Now, last night, I don't know what happened. I got an attack in my second toe. And it's, a, it's a, a real nerve pain. It feels like someone is taking a needle and stabbing my toe every minute or every other minute. And this went on all night. So I literally did not sleep at all last night. And here I am preaching. Joyful, at peace, happy. This morning, I had to ask a few people, hey, could you pray for me? The elders came to my office and prayed for me. But I want you to understand something right now. The rest that we're talking about is an internal rest. It's a rest that happens in your mind and in your heart, in your spirit, where you're calm. Show me somebody that doesn't have that, and I'll show you somebody who doesn't have the rest of God. And so... The writer of Hebrews says, all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors. Wow, there it is. Come to me, all you who are heavy or who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. A rest from your labor. What's he talking about there? Well, if you know Genesis chapter 3, you know that that was part of the curse, wasn't it, for Abraham or for, for Adam? You are, are going to be just breaking your back, Adam. Toiling, laboring. Before the fall, there was no toiling and laboring like that. Living in the garden was a joy. Now it's just a pain in the neck. One of the things I thought I would do when we moved to our new house 12 years ago is I'd plant a garden. Folks, I can't even grow grass. It's, just, it's, it's like dead every year. I'm watering it and I'm sprinkling stuff on it. I don't even know if I'm sprinkling the right stuff on it. I'm sprinkling it. So finally I called the experts. They're coming for 500 bucks. Oh, it's just a pain in the neck. Like I'm ready to put pavement down everywhere. Just pave the grass. <laughs> Live without it. When you and I come to God, we rest from our labor. And folks, I'm going to tell you, it's not just hard work on this planet, but I'm talking about the end of the curse. I'm talking about life on this planet. Here's the thing. When you put your faith in Christ, the rest of God begins immediately. You don't get all of it, but it begins now. Things begin to change. Things start getting better. Your life starts falling into place. You start living according to the disciplines of Scripture, and you start finding yourself happy with life, and you can cope with your job, and you can cope with your wife. You can cope with your husband. You can cope with your kids, your boss, your neighbors. 
But even more than that, folks, you have the assurance that you have eternal life through Jesus Christ. But it starts now. This is the rest of God that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, how can Jesus give us rest? How do we get his peace? How do we get his contentment? Well, look what it says here in Hebrews 4.11. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fall. I want you to see that phrase there, do our best. Do our best, in the Greek it could be translated, pay attention, be diligent, uh, work hard, labor. Work hard at running to Jesus, at getting your life straightened out. What does that mean to be diligent? Well, here's what I want to remind you of. If things are not going right in your life, you're having marriage problems, that's a red flag. God's trying to get your attention. You think that you're going to find rest somewhere else. You think you're going to find rest with someone else. If you're struggling in your marriage, what you need to do is not get a new wife. You need to run back to Jesus. If you're struggling in your marriage, you need to run to Jesus, not away from your husband. If you're struggling in your relationship with your kids, you need to run to Jesus. If you're telling dirty jokes and speaking in in ways that are vulgar, you're finding yourself swearing, that's a red flag that you've lost your rest and you need to run back to Jesus. Do your best. Be diligent. If you see that things are not right in your life, that's the red flag, that's your hint, that's your warning sign. You better get help immediately. On my car, I've got all kinds of dash lights. And when one of those lights begins to blink, I learned the hard way, if you don't get attention right away, you could lose your transmission, you could lose your engine, there's a lot of things you could lose. Immediately, go and get help. Now, when it comes to my vehicle, I run to my mechanic. When it comes to my life, I run to Jesus. What do you do? Who do you run to? I know you're running somewhere. You're trying somehow to fill that void in your life, to fix what's wrong in your life. And here's what God wants us to do. He wants us to run to Jesus. You're angry angry all the time, flying off the handles, screaming at your wife, screaming at your kids. You're, you're mad at everybody driving down the street and you're cursing everybody that's driving. And it's not even rush hour. You're cynical, sarcastic, maybe harsh. You've got a real attitude problem. Folks, that's an indication that you need to do your best to get that rest, to run back to Jesus. You're restless, unsettled. You're looking for something. Hey, is this you sometimes? This is me sometimes. I'm sitting at home. I'm kind of bored. What am I doing? Watching TV. Trying to find something. There's nothing. Nothing on the cooking channel. Nothing on HDTV. Oh, yes, Hawaii. Hawaii property. (laughs) Then there's a commercial, and I'm up. And I'm going to the fridge. It's in there. 
nothing. Go back, pick the magazine, nothing. Bridge is still the same, nothing changed in there. Nothing's changed on TV, nothing. And here I am, roaming around, restless. Folks, I'm gonna tell you, that's an indication. That's an indication that your heart is hungry. It's not hungry for food. It's not hungry for visual stimulation. What it's hungry for is hungry for God. And there's so many ways that we go around looking for ways to fill that void, that emptiness. Folks, when you find yourself restless and you find yourself angry, you find yourself acting like somebody who's not a Christian, you look in the mirror and you think, who is this person? I don't even recognize this person. That's your sign. Run to Jesus. Get on your knees before him and ask him to forgive you of your sin. Open your Bible up and start to read. Hey, you know what I love to do? I love to read through the Psalms and I love to read through the Proverbs. I learned many years ago that Billy Graham used to read a chapter of the Proverbs every day. And so basically you can run through the Proverbs once a month. Once a month. And there's 150 psalms, so you can do five psalms every day. And I started doing that years ago, and I, find, I just find myself, ah, getting centered, settling down, and getting back to that place where I know I have the peace of God, his glorious rest. Do your best. Be diligent. Labor. you got to work at this. This idea, this notion, you come to church and the pastor waves his magic wand over you and poof, you're beautiful little Christians. It's just, it's just not reality. It's not in the New Testament. It's not in the Old Testament. You have to engage with God. God will do his part, but you've got to do yours. You have to open your Bible. You have to pray. I told you before that a lot of times and when I was a youth pastor, people would come, pastor, I need counseling. And man, I, I could be going day and night with these kids. So finally I said, look, it, I, will, I will talk to you, but first you've got to go do your devotions. You've got to open your Bible and pray. And when you've done that, then we'll talk. My counseling just, just went down to like a tenth of what it was. What happened? Is that now Jesus is counseling them. And I'm going to tell you, Jesus is a far better counselor than I am. In fact, counselor is one of his names. Do your best. Be diligent to enter that rest. Don't be lazy. The minute you see that things are off track spiritually, then run to Jesus and get it sorted out. The problem with so many of us is we go from day to day, week to week, month to month, and then we wonder why we're getting into trouble. We wonder why we're struggling with pornography. We wonder why we're, 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 we've got the wrong friends and we're doing things that we know we should not do. We wonder why we're getting drunk. We wonder why we're abusing substances. We wonder why we're addicted. Do your best to enter that rest, to get back to God. Put Jesus at the center of your life. And you'll notice that the second part of that verse is, but if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fall. Here's what Jesus says here in Matthew eleven twenty nine: 29. Take my yoke upon you. Now, just let's stop there for a moment. I'm going to remind you that the idea of the yoke is that you now are in step with Jesus. So imagine, if you will, two oxen. And one oxen is Jesus, and you're the other oxen. Jesus is the experienced one. You're the novice. 
And as you're yoked with Jesus, you learn how to keep in step with him. And it, 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 a yoke of oxen only works when both are perfectly in sync and in step. I think the same thing can be said about horses. You put horses together, you put an old one with a young one, and they learn to function. The young one is disciplined and trained by the older one. That's the picture that Jesus is painting for us. In fact, that's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8, isn't it? When he talks about being in step with the Spirit, we are learning what it is, what it means to keep in step with Jesus. So we don't do our own thing. We don't follow our own path. We follow Jesus' path. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now look at this. As soon as you learn to keep in step with Jesus, there's a rhythm here, a rhythm. And it begins very slowly at first, but soon you're able to keep in step with Jesus. And now you've got rest. And now you're not weary. Now you're not worn out. Now you're not anxious because you've got Jesus at your side. This is called obedience. Obedience to Jesus. Let me teach you, Jesus says, because I'm humble and gentle at heart. I'm not going to knock you over the head every time you make a mistake. I love you. I care about you. Follow me, and you're going to find what? Rest for your souls. Christianity, folks, has changed the Western world. The Yale historian and professor Yaroslav Pelikan, he wrote this, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about Jesus of Nazareth, he has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. It is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. It is by his name that millions curse, and it's in his name that millions pray. This world has been transformed by Jesus Christ. Now, it's true that they, they are trying to remove, they, well, in many places, they've removed B.C. and A.D. because they just want to remove any trace of Christ. But the fact is, is that at the end of the day, it still dates to the birth of Christ. No one in the history of this world has had a greater impact than Jesus of Nazareth. And if we look particularly at the West, we see the prosperity, we see the law, the order. It's come to the place now, come to the point where people from around the world want to come to the West. Why? Because of the effects of Jesus Christ and his teachings upon a people who once obeyed Jesus. Some of you may have heard of Dennis Prager and Ben Shapiro. They say that Although they're not Christians, they 100% understand the powerful influence for good that Christ and his followers have had on all people. That's interesting. They say, we're not Christians, but beyond a shadow of a doubt, Christianity is one of the best things that's ever happened to this world. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. Let's, let's reduce it down to you and your household. As far as our culture goes, nothing could have been better for our culture than for Jesus to enter in. I'm going to say the same thing for your marriage. You show me a marriage that's happy, I'm going to show you a marriage that has learned what it means to submit to Christ. 
to live by the principles of Christ. How has Jesus changed the world? Well, when it comes to children, in the ancient world, children were routinely left to die of exposure, especially if that child was the wrong sex, the wrong gender. Oftentimes they were sold into slavery. Jesus comes along and he changes all that. When it comes to education, through Christ and what he did in the church, there's a, a new level of love of learning, which led to monasteries, which became the cradle of academic guilds, universities such as Cambridge, Oxford, Harvard, Yale, all came out of this, this Christian movement inspired by Christ to make a difference in this world. Through Christ, this world learned what it meant, what it meant to be compassionate. We see in Christ a universal concern for those who are suffering. And his compassion knew new bounds. You know that at the Council of Nicaea, they decreed that wherever a cathedral existed, there must be a hospice, a place for caring for the sick and the poor. That's why even today, hospitals are called the Good Samaritan or St. Anthony or the Good Shepherd. Christians were the first to establish these voluntary charitable institutions where compassion could be poured out on a broken and hurting world. That's what Jesus has done for our culture. Think of what Jesus can do for your marriage, what Jesus can do for your family. Through Christ, he, entered, he introduced the idea of humility. I'm going to tell you, humility was not, was not something that was widely appreciated. In fact, for most people, they thought it was a weakness. I lived in Greece for four and a half years, and I can tell you that humility was not something that the Greeks appreciated. In fact, many hundreds of years ago, Plutarch wrote a self-help book that might be, well, might crack the bestseller list. And the name of that book is How to Praise Yourself Inoffensively. There you go. Jesus introduced the idea of forgiveness. In the ancient world, it was a virtue to be able to punish your enemies and pay them back. Some of you remember Conan the, uh, Conan the Barbarian? He was paraphrasing Ganges Khan in his famous answer to the question, what is best in life? He said it was to crush your enemies and see them driven before you and hear the lamentations of their women. Jesus came to this earth and he changed all that. No more revenge, no more getting even. Asking for forgiveness, apologizing. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I was probably in the wrong. Hey, the only fights that you couples should be having with your, with your spouse is, no, I'm wrong, no, I'm wrong. Would you let me take responsibility for this? I'm the one that's in the wrong. Jesus broke down the system that said women were second-class citizens. Jesus removed and killed the idea that slaves were not, were not equal, were not precious, were not valuable in God's sight. I want to show you a video clip, and then I'm going to close. Mm -hmm. 
Some time ago, I had a conversation with a Marxist economist from China. He was coming to the end of a Fulbright Fellowship here in Boston. And I asked him if he had learned anything that was surprising or unexpected. And without any hesitation, he said, yeah. I had no idea how critical religion is to the functioning of democracy. The reason why democracy works, he said, is not because the government was designed to oversee what everybody does, but rather democracy works because most people, most of the time, voluntarily choose to obey the law. And in your past, most Americans attended a church or a synagogue every week, and they were taught there by people who they respected. My friend went on to say that Americans followed these rules because they had come to believe that they weren't just accountable to society, they were accountable to God. My Chinese friend heightened a vague but nagging concern I've harbored inside that as religion loses its influence over the lives of Americans, what will happen to our democracy? Where are the institutions that are going to teach the next generation of Americans that they too need to voluntarily choose to obey the laws? Because if you take away religion, you can't hire enough police. Let me teach you, because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is something that you have to do. This is your choice. You have to voluntarily say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you with all my heart. I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. Even if it doesn't make sense to me, Jesus, because you said it, because your word tells me I am going to do it. I am going to forgive that one who has offended me. I am going to let it go. I am going to walk in purity. I am going to build my life on your teachings, Lord Jesus. I am going to share my faith. I am going to tell people that I belong to Jesus. I got a a nice visit in my office last week. I'm going to close with this. Nick Hack walked into my office holding his newborn son, Caleb. How, how touching, how moving that was. And uh, somebody told me about a post that he made on Facebook, and so I dug it up, and I didn't warn him that I was going to do this, but you post it on Facebook, it's public domain, right? He says, one day we were driving home from church thinking about something our pastor had mentioned. That's me. Your life is not your own. Thinking about this, we realized, though it may be uncomfortable for us, the 16-year-old kid that, that was living with us was an opportunity, an opportunity to help him. They had wrestled with whether or not they should do that or not, but eventually they gave in because they realized their life was not their own. And he says, literally a week later, a week after they made the decision to do what God was prompting them to do, a week later, Christy, my wife, told me she thinks she's pregnant, and now she's due in two months. I give all the credit to God and truly believe that if you take care of God's business, if you obey him, that he'll take care of yours. Seek first the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. Matthew 6, 33. Let's stand together, shall we? Lord, at the end of the day, you're calling us to obey you. 
and to, to use due diligence when we know we're not where we need to be to, to act when we see those red flags and to make the changes necessary so that we're back on track. God, we read in your word that to obey is better than sacrifice. At the beginning of worship, of real worship, is obedience. And God, if we're going to enjoy that rest, if we're going to enjoy that promised land that we read about in Scripture, the only way that's going to happen is when we come to you in full obedience and we do life your way. Not doing what's convenient, not doing what seems best to me, but doing what you say. So Father, we pray today that you give us the grace and the strength to obey Jesus and to make those changes in our lives in those areas, God, that you've been revealing to us, those things where we're wrong, those areas where we're sinning, those areas where we've gotten off track. We want to get back on track today. We don't want another moment to go by. Forgive us our sins, O oh God. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And we thank you that you're faithful and just to do that. Now give us the grace to go from here in obedience and in step with our Savior. And we know, Lord, then we will have that peace our hearts long for. Then we'll be able to take a deep breath and be content, knowing that our lives are in step with Jesus. And we pray this in your name. And everyone said it with me? Tell the person beside you, go obey Jesus. <laughs>